0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. and You can turn to Matthew 5. Surprise, surprise. We'll be back in that same chapter again. But before we, we do that, I wanted to just to, to uh, bounce off of what John just talked about with the Tuesday night meeting. As we come to the conclusion of this last couple of weeks, we've been fasting and people have fasted various things from food to electronics to sugar to coffee to whatever things that, you know, the Lord's asked you to give up over this time as a way to prepare our hearts for the future, uh, repent and turn from the past and move forward. So coming this Tuesday night, it's an extremely important gathering for our church family Uh, as we move forward because of a couple of reasons, two main reasons. But before I mention those, I want just to underscore. One of the things over the last year that you've probably seen is that, you know, we've simplified the, the calendar and the schedule at church for a reason. Because, again, we're asking the question, God, what kind of church do you want us to be? And so that means that we, we've, allowed, we've eliminated some things. But another reason that we've done that is because we want to make sure that every time we do something as a church or we offer another ministry, that we're not doing it in competition with ourselves or asking you to do a million different things at once. So this Tuesday night, when we have a a church family meeting, it's extremely important that you're here. In fact, I've been here for a year, and this is the first church-wide gathering that we've called in the whole year. And so because of the future and what what this underscores for who we are and what we're becoming, there's two elements that are going to happen on Tuesday night that are extremely important. First is the conclusion of the fast and a time to celebrate communion together, turn the page on the past and move forward. There's a spiritual dynamic that is happening in our church that we are all moving forward together. The second one, as we move forward in right size and we look at, we're purchasing this building, we're going to talk about the details of that and the financing and all those kinds of things and then we're going to have a vote and it's important for us to be here together. I've had a number of people ask me, uh, hey, I'm not going to make the meeting, but can I vote? Sadly, you can't. Uh, according to Foursquare Bylaws, that's, that's our denomination, you have to be present in order to vote. So I want to make sure that if you have other plans Tuesday night, if there's any way within your power and ability to change your plans to be here, I encourage you to do that. I don't say that. In fact, it's the first time you've heard me say that in a year. But this is an extremely important gathering for us to move together as a church family. There's going to be child care available for birth through fifth grade, so you can bring your kids with you. We'll start at 7, and we'll hit the ground running and spending a time of worship, prayer, communion. And then we'll talk about right size and what God's calling us to do in moving forward. So Tuesday night, we're all going to be here, right? All right. You can DVR the Olympics, okay? Don't worry about it. So if you have your Bibles that I mentioned, we're going to be in John, or excuse me, uh, Matthew chapter 5. And uh, we'll be looking at the last 10 verses, 38 to, uh, to 48 of this chapter. Um, and believe it or not, we've been doing this for like six months now, and we finally finished one chapter. So we've pretty much digested, you know, what's there. So, but as we have the last number of weeks, Jesus has been hitting on some really important topics that are very challenging for all of us, as he always does. But talking about how he makes this com- these comments where you've heard that it was said So this is the way that you've always grown up, and the way that you've understood, and the way that the law has set out, but I say to you, this is what the true meaning and understanding of what this is, and how it looks in your life. Once again, Jesus touches on that kind of theme as we look at these verses this morning, and talks about the overall concept of revenge, and that is our our desire and, and our passion to make people pay when they offend us, or to get defensive over issues that we have with other people relationally. See, whether you know it or not, when you walked into this building today, you are armed and dangerous. Now, some of you literally are. Some of you may be carrying concealed weapons, and if that's the case, I don't want to know about it, okay? But all of us are armed and dangerous in that you and I have a mechanism that kicks in when people do things to us that we don't like. It's called our defensiveness, And it gets triggered by relationships and with people do things that offend us or that we don't like. And the result is we begin to defend ourselves and the process of defense always leads to going on the offense. Eventually we get to the point where we don't just defend ourselves, but we react against somebody and we go after them. That's what revenge is. And what Jesus has to say in this passage today is important for you and I to understand because when it comes to revenge, nobody wins. Ever. You can ask the Hatfields and the McCoys who wins in revenge. You know, the true story of two families that coming out of the Civil War got into battle over different things. And over 25 years, 12 people were murdered, one family or another, because they couldn't stop reacting against the other. Somebody would do this, so someone would respond this way. It's the same thing we see in gangs and the mafia and in our culture. We always have to one-up what's been done to us. And when we live that out, nobody wins. Because what revenge has, revenge has these fleeting moments of sweetness where you're like, yes, I got him. Followed by long periods of bitterness and anguish and disappointment and pain. And it's not what God has intended for you and I to live in. It's not what he's intended for people who've chosen to follow him with their lives. That he has a different way that he wants you and I to live This morning, there's two main things, and we'll look at two sections of the passage that what Jesus is calling you and I to embrace, the two keys that will disable our defenses and help us to live in a life that's not about revenge, but it's about loving people, is learning to surrender and learning to love. Not easy things, but things that he calls you and I to. So if you have your Bibles, let me read starting in verse 38. I'll read to verse 42, and we'll talk about the concept of what he calls you and I to surrender. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now let's just be honest. Does that sound like the total opposite of what you and I want to do? Exact opposite. I mean, you couldn't, if we we wrote it, we would write it in the opposite of what we really want to do. But Jesus highlights a couple things we want to touch on before we talk about the surrender, but two things, two keys to understand when we look at the passage. The first thing is, Jesus is not denying the law or changing the law, because you could think he said, Well, you've heard it said, but now I say this, somehow putting himself above the law. When you look at the passage, you look at verse 38, when he says you, he uses the word plural, He's he's referring to everybody. And so he's referring to the Jews and the civic law that govern their their nation of responding to an eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But then when he gets to verse 39, he changes and the word you becomes singular. He's pointing to individuals and saying, in your relationships, the way you live your life, this is the way you should live this out. It's important to understand that. So he's really fulfilling the intent of the law at a very personal level for people's lives. The second thing that sometimes people will take this passage and they'll say, well, Jesus is saying that anytime evil happens, anytime something bad happens to you, you're not supposed to do, ever do anything. We know that's not true because Jesus in his response when he came into the temple and he saw that the money changers were there and he saw that what the temple had become was about money and not about worship. Do you know anybody recall what Jesus did? He, he turned the temple upside down physically he was throwing tables he was clearing out people why because there was an injustice being done toward god in the way that they were worshiping that had to be addressed so jesus is not saying hey in order to follow me you have to be everybody's doormat but you do have to be willing to surrender and that's the challenge for you and i so what does he call you and i to surrender starting in verse 39 the second part of verse 39 he says you and i have to surrender our pride this is so hard He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. See, in Jesus' day and age, when he mentioned the concept of being slapped across the face, that was one of the most offensive, belittling, humiliating things you could do to anyone, is to slap them across the face. And so what he says, when you are belittled, when you are humiliated, turn the other cheek. Now, what would you and I, what's the, the, the gut reaction to being slapped? To slap back. I'm not going to turn my cheek. I'm going to hit their cheek. I'm going to respond. Jesus says no, because what happens is that when you and I respond to somebody's offense or humiliation or their pain that's inflicted on us with pain and humiliation, then it never ends. Because each time the other person has to respond with more and it just escalates and nobody ever wins. Instead, Jesus says, diffuse it, disarm it. Don't react to it. But turn the other cheek so that there isn't another opportunity for you to up them and them to up you. And see, the problem is, is that you and I, that's the way we live. And when we live this with this pride, see what pride tells you and I is that we are more valuable than anybody else. That's what pride, it's the lie that pride tells. And lie, the pride projects onto us what we think we're supposed to be all about, that we're better than everybody else. So we begin to act that way. And deep down inside, we know that we're broken, just like anybody else. But our pride tells us differently. I am more important. I am more valuable. And so when we live our lives, when somebody does something offensive to us, what do you and I respond with? How dare you do that to me? As though I'm up here and you're down there. That's the way we respond. It's the way we respond when we drive. Did you know driving is a perfect analogy of your spiritual life? It is. Because you can talk a great game, but the moment, behind, the moment you get behind the wheel of a car, what happens? It becomes all about you, doesn't it? It does. Because when we get behind the wheel of a car, it's like the, the rawest part of our humanity comes out. We call it road rage. And you see it on the road all the time, and we're guilty of that. Courtney and Jordan both have their permits, and they're learning to drive. Kim and I are teaching them to drive. They're taking driving lessons. And the first driving lesson, Jordan gets in the car with an instructor, and this is what his instructor tells him. You need to understand there's idiots in the world, and they all own a car. And they're all going to be out on the road today. So just assume that all the idiots are going to do the wrong thing. And sure enough, when you're driving, especially when you're driving with a teenage driver and you're, you're a little bit more cautious, you really see the idiots. They cut you off. They don't use their turn signal. They slam too hard. They speed. They tailgate you. I know. I've seen some of you doing it. No, I'm just kidding. But what is that in us? It is this statement that underlines everything, which is, I am more important than the person in the other car. My schedule, my time, my appointment, my getting to work, my getting home is more important than what they have to do in their life. Therefore, I'm entitled to cut in front of them. I'm entitled to go faster. I'm entitled to run that yellow-orangish light as it's turning red. Why? Because I have to get somewhere. See, all of us think that. What is that? That's pride. That's why we react when somebody cuts us off. It may be as little as a comment. It may be as much as getting up in front of them and waving them with the one-way sign. It's not the one-way sign we want to talk about. It's, It's a reaction. Why? Because I'm more important than they are. See, Jesus says, no, there's a better way. There's a better way. You can't just react because then they'll react. And before you know it, nobody ever wins. There's a second thing that Jesus highlights for you and I, that you and I have to surrender. We have to be willing to surrender our rights verse 40 he says and if anyone wants to sue you take your shirt he says make sure you go out and get the best attorney possible no he doesn't say that he says hand over your coat as well what let him sue me let him take from me that's not right that's not fair have those words ever come out of your mouth yeah It's not fair. No, what's not fair is that the God of the universe and human flesh who lived a perfect life died for sinners like you and I. That's not fair. So anything that we get after that, it's more than fair because it's been unfair to Jesus. But understanding that you and I feel like it is our right to do certain things. We have our rights and we hold very dearly. And usually we think when it comes to rights, very few few times do we fight really for the rights of other people. We're really fighting for our own rights. We make it look as though we're fighting for the rights of others, but we're really, it's about us. I have my rights. And what does Paul say to the church in Corinth who had this issue? He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, he says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've been completely defeated already. You're suing each other. And then he says this, he says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? For the sake of what? The sake of the relationship, why not be wronged? Why not be treated unfairly to somehow allow there to be a remnant of a relationship instead of being demanding of your rights? See, so many times we are willing to sacrifice relationship for our rights. Because it's about us. Because we have the right to do that as Americans or as a citizen, as a whatever, as a taxpayer. We use that all the time. In our neighborhood growing up, we had very... Very friendly, kind of close to the neighborhood. Everybody knew everybody kind of a thing. And down the street from us, there was two families that lived next to each other. And one family decided, that, and they were good friends, and they decided that they wanted to repave their driveway. And so they had a construction company come out, and they did it. They tore up the old driveway, and they repoured concrete and did this great job. And the neighbors next door had a, a picket fence that kind of bordered right where the driveway was. And so uh, after they had finished, and they have to, you know, the, everything was done, it was beautiful... The neighbor with the picket fence uh, came out and and he looked at the driveway and in his mind he thought, I wonder how close they are to the property line. These are two families that have been next to each other for years. So he had a surveyor come out and survey his property to see where the property line landed and he discovered that his neighbor had poured his new concrete driveway three inches over the property line. So what do you think he did? He sued him. He took his neighbor that he had been friends with for years to court because of three inches that he never used because he had a picket fence that bordered his property and there was three inches on the other side of that fence. He never went out and walked those three inches and said, look at my three inches. He never even cared about the three inches until when? Somehow his rights were violated. It was interesting to watch the whole neighborhood. Everybody took sides. It divided our neighborhood for a while. And he sued him and he won money because there had to be some compensation and it was just a mess. And these two families never talked to each other again. As long as we were in the neighborhood, they never talked to each other. Side by side, neighbors seeing each other every day would not talk. Why? Because of three inches. See, you and I think, well, I would never do that. Well, you and I fight for our rights all the time. Nobody wins. Nobody ever wins. We ultimately lose, even if we think we might win something in the courts we end up losing the relationship and the relationship is always far more important And then the third thing jesus calls us to surrender and this may be the most difficult for all of us I know it is for me Is that he says that you and I have to be willing to surrender our time You know, we can get really offended When someone asks for a time We can get really upset when someone says that we need to do something. We don't want to Jesus says if anyone forces you to go one mile go with them two. Jesus was referring to what a Roman soldier was allowed to do to any citizen. They could walk up to any citizen at any time and say, Hey, I want you to carry my pack. I need you to help me. And the citizen was obligated to do what they were asked to do. And obviously, if you are doing things and you have a schedule and you have a lot of things that are on your plate and your, your time is really tight and a Roman soldier walks up to you, there's resistance. You don't want to do this because you don't, first of all, as a Jew and the Romans, they didn't get along very well and so you don't want to do what he wants you to do. Plus, you don't want to be hassled because you don't want to give time to help him. So Jesus says, in all of that, don't just go one mile, but go two miles. Because it would have been enough to say, hey, just with a good attitude, go one mile. No, go two miles. Why? Because two miles requires more time than one mile. That ability to be flexible enough to say that i can give up my time that might be so for some of us the most valuable thing that you have is your time and if you and i understand so many times when people put demands or requirements on us or the, even the, the worst thing is when people interrupt our lives we don't like it see we all have very important schedules and time frames and work and home and and church and all these different things that we do and we pack our lives full of stuff so that when something happens that we consider an interruption, it irritates us. Almost sometimes we get offended at people because they're getting in our way. Don't they know how important we are and how much we have to do? Have anybody ever read through the Gospels and realized that the majority of Jesus' miracles happened as a result of interruptions? Now, last time I checked, there was no other human being more important than Jesus Christ that walked the face of the earth. But what was he willing to do? He was willing to constantly be interrupted so that the power of God could flow through him to touch people's lives. Never one time did someone, you know, did a, did a crippled man from the side of the road to say, you know, Jesus, heal me. And Jesus said, you know what? Well, let me check the schedule. Peter, do you have the schedule today? I don't think we have time for healing right now. We better keep moving forward. You never see that because he was constantly interrupted. But how many times do you and I become offended when somebody requires more of our time? because we have so much packed in there of what's really important. And we get offended when we're asked to do something than what we're not already doing in our own tight, important, valuable schedule. So Jesus tells us to do that. Then there's a fourth thing he requires us to surrender. He says to surrender your possessions. Verse 42, he says, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Are you kidding me? It's my stuff, right? We always say this, but we don't really live it. It's not really my stuff, it's God's stuff. Really? Then why is it so hard to part with it? Because it's ours. If we're just honest, we've bought it, we've taken care of it, we've somehow earned the right to have it, therefore we don't want anybody else messing it up. I know, I'm kind of OCD that way. I like to have my stuff and I don't want people dinging up my stuff that I work hard for. Anybody want to admit that's you? Okay, all five of you and the rest of you are liars. I know it's true. It is. We value our stuff. We value it to the point where we value it more than people. So what if somebody borrows something and it gets ruined? Is it the end of the world? You know, I've told story after story after story about my dad, and he's the one person in my life that I've watched throughout the years, even as a child and as an adult, who has truly throughout his lifetime valued people more than possessions. In everything that he has, he truly lives with the reality, this is not mine, this is God's. That's why I've told the story when our neighbor asked to borrow the lawnmower, and my dad said, absolutely, you can borrow it. And then he made the wonderful decision to mow his, not only his grass, but his ivy too. And then he hit a sprinkler head, and he broke the blade, and he brings the mower back over with the broken blade and said, hey, I'm sorry, you know, in Texas, we had these kind of mowers that you could do this with. Well, you're not in Texas anymore, and you're in California. And I remember, I was so mad, and my dad said, that's okay, no problem. My dad took it, took it to a shop, paid for it to get fixed. That's not fair. Another time, we had a friend, family friend, who didn't have a car. And at the time, we had five drivers in our, in our house, and we had three cars. And he said, oh, we have an extra car. No, we don't, Dad. Do the numbers, you know? <laughs> and she said, she goes, you, could, you can borrow our car. And so she gets the car. And this is the crazy thing. Not only did she get to borrow the car, on the way out, she scrapes the side of our house, takes out a fence, and scrapes up the side of the car, and doesn't even know she did it. I was stunned as I watched her do that, and she just drove away. I was so mad. And so I waited for when she came back. I was waiting for my dad to give it to her, and he didn't. To this day, I don't think she knows she destroyed the car and the house. My dad went and took the car and got it fixed, and then he fixed the fence by himself, and he never said anything else. Why? Because the relationship was more important than a lawnmower or a car or a fence. It really didn't belong to him. That's what Jesus calls us to do, is that ultimately, see, what gets us offended is when we value possessions more than people. When somebody takes our stuff and ruins it, we get angry. You know, rarely have we ever driven by an accident on the side of the road and seen a really happy person who just got rear-ended. We're mad, why? It's my stuff and you ruined my car. What did Paul say? Why not be offended? Why not be cheated? What, for the sake of what? The relationship. If you and I lived that way, I think we'd be more at peace with ourselves and with other people. So now Jesus shifts and says, listen, this is what you have to give up, which none of those are easy, but those are the things that cause rubs in our relationship. Those are the things that cause us to want to live out revenge. Those are the things that cause us to be offensive or offended and defensive towards other people. But then in verse 43 to verse 47, then Jesus talks about the next step is learning to love our enemies. It's not enough just to surrender But you and I actually have to love the people that we actually hate. He says in verse 43, again, he says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that uh, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. What is Jesus saying? He's saying something really difficult. See, what you and I would love to do is to be able to tolerate our enemies. Jesus is not saying tolerate. He's saying love. That's hard. To love somebody that I hate, to love somebody who hates me, to love somebody who wants ill in my life, who we would consider an evil person? He says, you and I have to learn to love them. Three things that he says from this passage that shows us how to love our enemies. The first one is in verse 44, that you and I need to learn to pray for them. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I know many times we think, I can pray for my enemy. I can pray that the fire of fire of God strikes them dead on the spot. I can pray that prayer. Anybody agree? I can pray that prayer. That's not the kind of prayer that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about praying for them as though you would pray for any other friend. He's saying pray for those who persecute you who don't like you because you need to understand something happens when we pray for people. It transforms our hearts. See, what happens when you begin to really think through when you're not praying for selfish motives to try to get God to judge somebody else, but you're praying for somebody, legitimately praying for their life, you begin to see something about your enemies that you never realized before. They're human. They're human just like you. See, you and I have this ability when we hate somebody, we dehumanize them. They're no longer human like we are. They're, they don't suffer. They don't have struggles. They don't have pain. They're just evil, hateful, horrible people. But they're just like us. They're human beings. And when you pray for somebody, you begin to understand they're just like you. They're sinners. They're broken. They do wrong things. And because of that, it begins to change your attitude and your heart towards them. When you start to pray for God's blessing in their life, even though you can't stand them. When you start to ask that God would heal them, even though you wish they would die. Something changes in you. Because you're starting to see them as a human being. You're starting to see them as God sees them. As a human being that he loves dearly. I've told you the story before, but I've watched Kim demonstrate this in her life when she started working at zoo, Pacific a number of years ago. And for some reason, there was a girl that she was working in the office with who hated her. And I don't know how you can hate my wife. I love her. I know I'm biased, but she's a really hard person to hate. But this girl found in her heart to come up with that. And so she tried to sabotage Kim's work. She tried to do everything to make Kim look bad with her superiors. She just had it out for Kim to just, for some reason, she didn't like her. And so I remember Kim coming home and telling me this. And I was getting defensive. I was armed and dangerous. I was ready to go after her. And she said, no. She goes, I know what God's calling me to do. God's calling me to love her. God's calling me to pray for her. I'm like, well, you're a better person than I am. Please do it. And so Kim started to pray for her. And started to love her. And started when she'd do something mean or hurtful, Kim would respond with kindness. She would take her out to lunch. She would buy her things just as a gift. She would do this over and over again. And over time, this girl started to melt. The heart exterior and the pain that she was causing, Kim, just went away. And this girl, actually, when Kim and I were i was just finishing up college, she became one of our good friends that we would go and hang out with. It was amazing. This happened in a period of six months. She went from hating Kim to loving her. Because my wife had the ability to say, you know what, I'm going to pray for her because she's a human being just like me. She's broken. She needs God to break through. And as a result of that, God transformed this amazing person so that they were actual friends. And this is one of the things I learned from those kind of experiences. Do you think that maybe when you have an enemy that you didn't pick, sometimes we pick our enemies, but sometimes our enemies pick us, that maybe the reason that they've picked you is because God wants to do something in their life? And it may just be that you're irritated by them and you just wish that they would go away and you wish God would strike them dead. But the reason that they have chosen you to be their enemy is because God has chosen you to dis- demonstrate to them what love looks like. And it's only through your relationship with that person who's chosen you as their enemy that God's going to transform their soul. See, there's, there's a bigger thing going on than just our rights and, and us being irritated and us being offended. God is at work in our relationships. Even in the difficult ones. Second thing that Jesus uh, tells us to do to love our enemies is he tells tells us that we need to be gracious with them. That's not very easy. Verse 45, it says that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And then he describes what the Father in heaven does. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that the God of the universe loves people. That God doesn't play favorites. Now, in in the end, at the judgment, the righteous and the unrighteous will be judged. But in this period of grace, God's love for people is not about in and out or favorites. He's saying what? He causes the sun to rise, what? On the good and evil. And the rain comes, what? On the righteous and the unrighteous. See, sometimes when we become Christians, we start to think that it's the in and the out. It's the club. I'm in the club, so I'm on God's good side, so he gives me all good stuff. They're not in the club. God gives all the bad stuff to them. That's not the way God works. Because God's Spirit is at work in all people, trying to draw them back through Jesus, back to God, to be reconciled. That's his purpose. See, you and I have the tendency to create that, but God doesn't. He doesn't have this kind of, okay, it's only going to rain over here, but it's not going to rain over here. Why? Because he's gracious, and he calls us to be gracious with people. And that's hard because we want, to be, we want to react against them. But we can't play favorites. We have to love people. All people. Even people who don't love us. Because something happens when we love people that changes them. Hating people never wins. It never works. When I was in third grade, I had a friend named Chappelle. He wasn't my friend at the time. He was my enemy because he was everybody's enemy. And he was in my elementary school all the way up until sixth grade. But the first year that I knew him... He was the worst person to be around. He was the biggest bully in the school. And the reason he was a bully, there's a lot of dynamics in his life. But he was the most intimidating guy because he, was, he, he could come and you could be having a fun time on the monkey bars and Chappelle would walk up there and the party's over. Because he would say pretty much, these are my monkey bars. And if you don't get, out, get off of them, this is what he would say to everybody. This is like the threat you didn't want to hear. He'd always say, I'm going to kick your butt after school. That was his line. You're like, oh no, that means when the bell rings, you better run as fast as you can to get home. And so he was, you know, he was everybody's enemy. And I began to kind of get to know him a little bit from a distance and some of his friends, and I started to hear a little bit about who Chappelle was as a person. There was an apartment complex that I used to walk by when I'd walk to school and, and home every day that was a really rough apartment complex that you knew that the families that lived there were struggling. It was not a nice apartment complex, and Chappelle lived there. And so I started to hear kind of from some of his friends who lived in that apartment complex that Chappelle's dad was long gone years ago. In fact, he probably didn't even know who his dad was. He was living with his mom and and siblings and his mom was working a couple jobs to try to make ends meet so she never even saw him. So when he would get off from school, he would go home to an empty household. This is like a third grader. So this is the life that he's living. And so he's angry and he's bitter and he's this bully all the time. And I remember watching him. He was a really good athlete, which was one plus because I liked to play sports with him. You could kind of win him over if you got on his team. And I remember starting to be his friend and starting to realize, and then I, I saw the, the real Chappelle start to come out. When we'd be out on the playground, something would happen. Somebody would say something to him that actually had the guts to say something really offensive to him. And I waited him for him to say the same thing. He always said, I'm going to kick your butt after school. And all of a sudden, he'd make comments that he'd say like, oh, that, that wasn't very nice. And then there were times he would start crying. He would just like sob, like lose it. This, I mean, this tough kid who's going to beat everybody up, he just starts sobbing because what happened is that the pain was greater than his tough exterior. He couldn't manage it anymore. And that became more and more true of, of this kid who was so tough and he lost the tough exterior. And as a result, he changed. And by his fourth grade year, he wasn't the same kid anymore. He wasn't the tough bully that everybody was afraid of. He actually was pleasant to be around. And he became one of my good friends that I always wanted to pick on basketball because he was one of the best basketball players. But he wasn't this kid anymore. Something happened in him. It's because people around him actually started to have compassion. Not just me. I watched people stop being angry at him and starting actually feeling sorry for him and have compassion and treat him with grace. And something changed in this third grade kid. It's the way God works in our life. What is going to diffuse that kind of activity in people's lives? Is it standing up and, no, I'm going to let you have it? No, it's being compassionate and gracious and loving towards somebody who hates you or persecutes you or who is the bully. Now, I know we always want to see the bully get theirs, but it never works. That's the way we like to see the movie end when the bully gets beat up and everybody cheers. The problem is they didn't make the sequel yet. The bully gets back up and keeps bullying. See, if you and I understand the way God works, he wants us to be gracious with other people as the Father is gracious with us. Then leads to the the final thing in in verse 46 and 47, then I'll just close with verse 48. But Jesus also calls us to love our enemies by accepting them. Again, I'll, I'll tolerate them, but I don't want to love and accept them. But Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collectors. Don't they do that? The tax collectors were the scum of the earth. If they got that one down, they're better than you are. And if you greet only your own people, so people that you like or you're familiar with, aren't you, you're not doing much more than others. Even the pagans, they do that. He's saying you have to go beyond just to, to the point of tolerating, to actually accepting them and loving them. See, you and I have to understand in our life, if we're truly going to be followers of Jesus, then you and I should be able to think of people who were former enemies but are now friends. If all we have is enemies in our life, then we haven't allowed the grace of God to penetrate our hearts. We haven't felt the compassion of Jesus in our life yet because it hasn't translated to somebody else. But if all we have is enemies and no former enemies who are current friends, then we're missing it. Then we're living a life of revenge. We're living a life of defensiveness and offense. We're not living the life that God's intended for us. See, you and I have to understand, all of us were enemies. That's what Paul says in Colossians and he says in Romans. At one time, all of us were enemies of God. But because what Jesus did on the cross and his death for you and I, now when you get to John 15, Jesus actually says we're friends. We're friends. We went from enemies to friends because what Jesus did for you and I, that's what he's calling you and I to live out in our lives, is to be people who have a lot of former enemies. Not a lot of enemies, but a lot of former enemies in our life that are now our friends. And I'm convinced from my own experience, one of the reasons God desires that for you and I is because, believe it or not, one of the primary vehicles He may use to teach you and transform you is through your enemies. It's through the people you can't stand, the people that you hate, the people that you wish were not in your life. God may be using that very person to teach you something about yourself that you couldn't learn from just a friend. And the reason I can say that is because for me, I have learned profoundly through a friend of mine who started off as one of my worst enemies. Some of you might even know him. His name's Greg Russinger. He's a Foursquare pastor, pastor of Ventura. And now he's up in Portland. He's one of my good friends today. But when we first met, we hated each other. We were both at Life Pacific going to college to study to be in the ministry and serve Jesus and we hated each other's guts. What a wonderful Christian example. Future pastors, isn't that great? It shows God does redeem people, doesn't he? But when Greg and I first met, Greg and I were the polar opposite. On the campus, Greg was the ultimate rebel and I was the ultimate do-good, obey-the-rules guy. And so anything great, any rule that they created, Greg would find a way to violate it. In fact, the ultimate kind of in-your-face is that at the time, it was kind of cool to wear a bandana around your head, and Greg had really long hair, and he had tattoos. I mean, Greg is like the opposite of me. If you put Greg up here, I mean, right now, he's, he's got tattoos, he's got a full beard, he just, he looks really cool northwest. I'm the straight-laced kind of geeky guy who looked totally opposite. So, in Bible college, Greg is this rebel, and... So one day they had the, the they had in chapel, Greg was making some announcement for some event coming up and the, the board of directors, which is the, the main governing board for our denomination for Foursquare globally, uh, half the board was there at that chapel. So Greg's making an announcement. What do you think Greg does? He puts a bandana on and goes up on the stage and makes the announcement. I was like ready to rip my robe out of you know, like disgust. Can't believe he's doing this and they're letting him get away with it. And he walks off the platform, and I could just see that little smirk on him. Like, I can get away with whatever. And I remember, so, for like the next couple years, Greg and I, we would barely talk to each other. We'd just look at each other with this kind of searing hatred and anger, like across the campus or in chapel or whatever it was. And then I graduated. And a few months after graduating, Dennis Easter calls me and says, Hey, I want you to consider coming and being our youth pastor in Ventura. So Kim and I prayed about it and said, yeah, we feel like this is what God's calling us to do. So we moved to Ventura, back from where we were living in San Dimas. And so we're there, and things are going. And then I, then I started putting two and two together, and I realized that Greg was dating Michelle, which was Dennis' daughter. The worst part was, it wasn't just his daughter that would be his future husband. They would be married. But then three months later, Dennis brought Greg on staff, too. Oh, my goodness. I'm like, honestly, I said, God, really? If there's any other person on the, on the planet you could put on staff, could you put them instead of him? He's praying and saying the same thing about me. God knew exactly what he was doing. So Greg and I were forced to work together. I was the youth pastor at the time, but I was going to be youth pastor for a short amount of time that I was going to be associate pastor, and Greg was going to take over youth. So we had to work together. It took a little time, but I remember sitting in the same room with Greg and starting to listen, and he was starting to listen to me, and we started to realize something. Though the exterior was very different, internally our hearts were the same. We started talking about people and ministry and mission and the city and all those things, and they were the same. We just had different exteriors. And God started to melt away the hatred we had for each other, and we became such good friends, really good friends. In fact, one of the funniest things that we did was probably about a year into doing youth ministry together. One night, we were, we were talking about how God looks at the heart and how man looks at the exterior. So one night, I dressed up like Greg, and he dressed up like me. And I literally borrowed Greg's clothes. I looked so cool. I grew a goatee at the time. I mean, it was awesome. I had a beanie on, and I think I even had like a nose ring or something. I think I might have even had a fake tattoo. And I walk into youth group, and all the kids are like, who's that? And then Greg tried to play up the geek side really big time. So he wore these really like high shorts and just, I mean, I hope I don't look like that. But man, he just looked and he comes walking and the kids are laughing and everything. But we, it made the point. The kids understood we look different on the outside, but we're the same on the inside because that's what matters most. The funny thing is after that, literally for a year, I had kids come up to me and say, why don't you dress like that all the time? You look so cool that night. I'm like, sorry, that's Greg. I'm not cool. Greg's cool. So that's why he was the, the, eventually the youth pastor. But God used that, and for years, Greg and I have been friends for years now, and, and over time, God has used Greg in my life, and God has used me to help shape things in him. Because we are different on the outside, and we were enemies, God has used us to become friends, to change our understanding of people. I am so grateful that Greg is my friend. He is a former enemy that God used to help shape my life. That's what Jesus wants for us, is that we learn to love and accept our enemies because they may be the very people that God wants to use to change us. Let me close with this. Jesus says one last very, very hard and difficult thing in verse 48. He sums it all up by saying, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Piece of cake. I haven't met one person yet who says that's their life verse. That's okay, just be perfect, Your Father is perfect in heaven. Just be like him and you'll be fine. What is Jesus saying? He's making some really powerful statements for you and I. He's saying, listen, I understand by making this statement. Does he know human beings pretty well? Does he know that that there's no human being that's ever been perfect except for him? He knows that. So why would he say be perfect? See, he's given us the example of what what our Father in heaven is, who is gracious to people, who allows the rain to come on the righteous and the unrighteous. The sun to shine on the good and the evil. He's a compassionate. He's saying, your model, your role model is your father in the way he treats people. But he also understands our humanity. And this is what's so powerful. Because this is kind of a hinge point in a Sermon on the Mount. Because what Jesus is saying is, in a sense by saying, be perfect. He's saying, you can't be perfect apart from me. Apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, you can't be what you're supposed to be. It is impossible. If all you and I pick up from reading through the Sermon on the Mount and studying it is the do's and don'ts, then we've missed it because it is absolutely impossible to live this way apart from a supernatural act of God in our lives. He's underscoring that. You need me to be perfect like your father. You need the work of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you to give you the ability to turn the other cheek. The ability not to take advantage of someone, to fight for your rights, to be selfish. You need me to change you in order for you to accomplish that. And what Jesus is demonstrating, what he said early on before he gets into all these things that you've heard it said, but I say this. Remember what he said? Your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees. What did the Pharisees try to do? They tried to be perfect on the outside and they couldn't do it. Because even in their their seeking to be perfect on the outside, they were bankrupt on the inside. To be perfect as the Father is perfect only means that you and I rely solely on Jesus Christ. Why? Because according to the Father, when he looks down at us, if we've confessed our sin and we repented and turned from that and we choose to follow Jesus, when the Father looks at us, what does he see? He sees perfection. He sees righteousness, not ours, but whose? Jesus. That's why you and I can be perfect if we've surrendered fully to Jesus in our life. That's so important. As we move forward as a church, God is calling us to live differently, to be different. Through what? Through surrendering to his power in our life. The future is not about us It's about glorifying God and seeing people's lives transformed. It's not about our rights. It's not about our agenda. It's about what God wants to do. And the longer you and I hold on to our stuff, the more we'll be offended, the more friction we will have, and the less progress we're going to make as individuals and as a church family. God's calling us forward. He's calling us and he's giving us the pathway of how to move forward in right relationships with each other and with even people outside of New Hope that maybe have become our enemies, that's God saying, that needs to be a former enemy. That needs to be a friend that you love. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you once again for very pointed words that when you spoke what you did, it captured the heart of people. It challenged people. It even probably offended people. And Lord, the same is true for us today that these are challenging words. But you are not going to call us to do something that you can't equip us through you to do You will call us to do something that's impossible in our humanity lord following you is impossible Salvation is impossible, but lord with you nothing is impossible So I pray lord today that you would give us the strength and the courage to be willing to surrender Ourselves surrender our pride Lord, that the image that we want to project of who we are and what we have to keep up, the, the, the offensive way that we live and that we're constantly offended by other people, Lord, let us let go of that. Lord, and even our rights, where we want to hang on so tightly to what we think we, we are deserving, that, Lord, we would be willing to let those go because you were willing to lay down your rights. And because of that, Lord, we can surrender ours. We can give everything that we have away to you. So Lord, I pray that we would learn at every level to truly surrender ourself, including our time and the things that we believe that we own, that ultimately our time and possessions would belong to you and we would live that out in our lives. And the result would be, Lord, not just the absence of, but the presence of love for our enemies. Lord, we know that the world will change because people will see those who follow you are people of love. So, Lord, help us to be that with each other. Help us to live that out in our world. And, Lord, even now, those who maybe even you brought to mind people who they need to be working towards making that person a former enemy. Lord, give us the courage and the strength to, tr- to learn to love and accept those who hate us, just as you did, when, Lord, when you looked down on those who were crucifying and you said to the Father, forgive them, because they don't understand what they're doing, that we would have that same approach and that same heart for people around us. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.